This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to independent researcher Christopher Schwartz. He is based in Kyrgyzstan and he's going to be speaking about an incident that happened there in August, which has basically set the country into a very tense situation. It was a political shootout, it wasn't just a random criminal thing, and it has deep implications possibly for the future of Kyrgyzstan, a place you rarely hear about in the news or in the media anywhere, to be honest. Just wanna say thank you very much to everybody who took part in the Popular Front 10K campaign. We hit our goal, thank you so much. There will be updates about what that means very soon. And thank you to everyone on the Patreon. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. Let's talk about what happened in uh, Kyrgyzstan recently because there was a big arms standoff, right? I think someone was killed. And to be honest, no one has really heard about it over here in the West, really, other than on Twitter. Like, what happened? Yeah, okay, so just a little context first. Um, so Kyrgyzstan, officially the Kyrgyz Republic, is a post-Soviet Republic. It's one of the original 15 member states of the Soviet Union, and it was one of the reluctant ones to leave, right? So when Russia finally signed out, Central Asia was basically kicked to the curb, and they all became independent. Um, and so Kyrgyzstan is very unusual because its immediate post-independence leadership uh, embarked upon a path of democratization. Most of the Central Asian states decided to go the authoritarian route. Uzbekistan was particularly scary. They were headed up basically by uh, former KGB, and they just established the KGB state. Um, so Kyrgyzstan, however, was led by intelligentsia. Their president was actually a physicist. Very unusual. Um, and uh, so they didn't have much in the way of an economy. Um, so they thought the best way to sort of appeal to the world for aid and what they also felt sort of fit their own national character uh, was uh, basically some form of, of authoritarian democracy. Um, and so for the first... Wait, uh, wait, authoritarian democracy? What even is that? So sometimes called managed democracy. So the idea is that uh, they, they, really do have, they really do have elections. They really do have political parties. We, there's a question about the ideological substance of those parties. But they really have, they really have uh, the, the, the structures and institutions of, a, of an electoral democracy. But the president is like, um, so officially the president is supposed to stand above politics. So oftentimes the president is not allowed to actually be a member of the party. Moreover, the president is sort of given a lot more powers over the legislature than you or I would be comfortable with as Westerners. So, um, and on top of that, you have a lot of electioneering. And when I say electioneering, I mean above and beyond the kind of manufacturing of consent, what you and I would see in the West. Right. So outright vote buying, what they call administrative resources, which basically means pressuring state workers or anyone who's on the on the state bill to vote a certain way. Um, just outright intimidation and extortion, uh, you know, then the usual losing votes, uh, votes have been miscounted, technical errors of all sorts, etc. So um, uh, so it's, it's difficult to say that it's a, a it was a dictatorship because uh, it wasn't. But uh, obviously, its democratization was was uh, complicated, to put it nicely. Um, but um, the difference between Kyrgyzstan and its neighbors was its neighbors really had like fake outright elections. There has always been an element of the, of the, of the unknown and unexpected in Kyrgyz uh, elections. Um, so there was, it had to really be a lot of real vote engineering, a lot of electioneering to actually get the results that the government would want. 
that's a major difference. Another major difference has to do with the, their market economy. So uh, in brief, basically, the other Central Asian states maintain strong state control over the mechanisms of the economy. Uh, Uzbekistan even remained a centralized planned economy, uh, same for Turkmenistan. Kyrgyzstan, however, liberalized in the mid-90s, uh, which was probably the real long-lasting effect, uh, long-lasting uh, choice, because what happened was suddenly there emerged a number of, of uh, businessmen basically who could develop wealth and resources independent of the state. So they didn't, they didn't, they, their livelihoods were not dependent upon the state, which meant that there suddenly emerged a new post-apparatchik, post-Soviet elite, rivaling with power for the old Soviet elite. Uh, this is not to get into regional differences and so on, but it, it fundamentally means that um, uh, factional infighting rapidly increased. Um, and, and this kind of became an equation for further democratization. And what we saw uh, in August is actually a direct result of that decision to liberalize because the ex-president who was involved in this attempted, I would say, coup d'etat personally, uh, was one of these businessmen. He's a, he, he owes his career to that liberalization. Um, so uh, what happened was 2005, so uh, back up again, uh, Kyrgyzstan also has a history of, of revolution in, in the post-Soviet uh, period. Uh, so its people have a tendency to uh, burn shit down, <laughs> basically. Right, right. Uh, uh, and there's, it's complicated. There's a there's a, a concept called the wealth, the weapons of the wealthy. There, it's the idea of sort of like grassroots disenchantment being mobilized by elites who are trying to gain power and control over resources. And there's sort of like complex relationships in terms of patronage where uh, this is where the regionalism gets important where certain factions of, of the population favor certain elites because those elites, when they get in power, will then funnel resources back to them and so on and so forth. It's sort of, you know, the American concept of pig barrel spending. It's sort of like that, but with a real edge. Um, right. And so 2005, the, the original president was kicked out in the first of these revolutions, uh, led basically by uh, Southerners with a mix of, of Northern uh, elites, uh, including businessmen, um, then there was a kind of, uh, let's say, interwar period uh, until 2010. And that president, who was was really authoritarian by nature, so the previous president sort of slid and you know slid into more and more authoritarianism. When he started, according to that generation of journalists that I've met, he really was a, a kind of genuine liberalizer at the start. But then time went on, and sort of, I guess you could say, power corrupts, um, and out he went. The guy who replaced him, however, was like a true blue dictator in his instincts. Uh, but he came from Southern patrons networks, Southern mafia networks, and in general was seen as a Southern boy. Uh, there's a very big and big thing going on among the ethnic Kyrgyz uh, between the North and South. Um, he got kicked out in 2010 by the coalition of grassroots movements and elites that now comprise the current government. Um, and they changed the constitution. They had an interim president who was a philosopher, actually, believe it or not. Rosa Ontsvayeva was her name. Um, she was in there for approximately a year. And then she was succeeded by this businessman whose name was Almazbek Atambayev. Uh, and, and so in the constitutional reforms, they did something very interesting. They tried to create a much more parliamentary system with a weaker presidency. It's still a very strong presidency compared to what you'd expect in the West. Sorry, strong as in, you mean like kind of... Iron grip strong. Yeah, like like what what the president can do legally is like uh, very very powerful, right? The pre- I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's a really robust executive. Yeah, it sounds fucked up. Um, this is debatable, to be honest. This this in political science has been a long debate about which systems lead to more stability and progress. 
parliamentary systems and presidentialist systems. Weirdly enough, presidentialist systems actually yield maybe much more stability in the short to medium term and parliamentary systems do it in the long term. And so you have to have a population willing to grin and bear uh, the short to medium term suffering to get to sort of long term um, results. Um, and the United States is sort of a premier case of a mixed system, but that ultimately leans towards presidentialism, especially in the 20th century. They call it the imperial presidency since the Cold War. Um, and then, of course, you being British, of course, you come from the premier parliamentary system, right? Um, and um, your system has been working on itself for centuries, brother. I mean, you know, so like it took you a long time to get to where you are now. Yeah, and it's still fucked. <laughs> that depends on your perspective again. I'd be inclined to agree with you, but yes. Um, I think whether you are in favor or against Brexit, this parliament is a fucking joke. Um, and uh, everyone has a reason to be pissed off. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so the um, so this is a big debate. And um, the, the problem with presidentialist systems in the literature is that there's, there's a temptation there, right? You know? So they actually do solve a lot of problems. There's one guy who makes the final choice, right? It's very elegant, very nice, reassuring. Whether you agree or disagree with that choice. To me, that sounds awful, but each to each their own. But that, I mean, that could make a lot of sense in a crisis situation, right? You know, militaries are structured pretty much on this principle, right? Um, and and they, that's why they're effective if they're organized and uniformed and not, not child soldiers somewhere. Um but the um, and, and, and especially in a kind of crash that you saw in the 1990s with the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it makes a lot of sense why you want to go in that direction. But then there comes this temptation aspect too, the sort of worship of the president, right? Uh, you see that in the American context quite a lot. You see that to some extent in the French context, which also have uh, they also have a very strong presidentialist system. So and then there's this idea that there's this guy somewhere out there who will make all the hard decisions for us and will solve things, etc. Right? It, it can kind of breed a sort of existential laziness. Um, so uh, that's the temptation that comes with it. Um, the Kyrgyz are unusual in this respect because um, they um, they probably really would prefer some mix of the two. They really would like a strong man as president, but they are starting to grasp that actually their long-term stability lies in a more parliamentary style of system. Um so they're interesting. The Kyrgyz are interesting <clears throat> in general, culturally. They they really break ranks with the other Central Asians. Right, right. So so let's fast forward to this mad situation that's happening now that happened recently. How did that all happen? And you know what exactly did happen? So 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 basically, he gets replaced by his own chosen protege, a guy named Jane Bekov. Uh, he thought that uh, Jane Bekov was someone he could manipulate behind the scenes, and Jane Bekov turned out to be his own man. Um, and uh, over the course of the last year, there's been a buildup of a lot of tension between these two guys, with Altenbaev in particular doing some really crazy things um, to kind of fight asymmetrically. But the, the countdown had begun. Uh, Altenbaev at one point secretly sneaks off to Russia to meet Putin. That doesn't go so well for him. He comes back. He has a presidential compound in a distant suburb of Bishkek called Koytash. <clears throat> and he, that, that compound is like he developed into a fortress. He even installed a bunker into it. And wow. yeah, man. And and furthermore, what he did was he had families move into his territory. So the Kyrgyz, they're a Turkic Mongolic group. They live in, you know, they traditionally live in yurts. And the way it would work for them militarily, like what happened with the Mongols way back when, is that, you know, when you go to fight, you bring your family with you, right? So there's a lot of symbolism in this. 
So he managed to get a bunch of supporters together that like literally moved their yurts into his territory and lived there. Um, right. And they basically were human shields. So uh, the the, uh, the government on the Jane Bekov decided to get the drop on him and they sent in uh, national security. They sent in a very small team of seven guys. But wait, sorry, why, why did they send it in? Because he basically wanted to take over or what? Like I heard there was corruption allegations and all sorts. Yeah, this is the thing. It's not really clear what Altenbayev wanted up until right. that point. Um, so the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back, Altenbayev was probably trying to secure his position and be safe. So to his credit, he didn't want to run. See, Kyrgyzstan has a nasty tendency of ex-presidents running away for their lives and taking their wealth with them. Altenbayev actually wanted to hold his ground um, on a matter of principle, maybe a sense of what the nation actually needs. Whatever it was, he decided to hold his ground. Um, and um, uh, But holding your ground in Kyrgyzstan is difficult because the state apparatus is coming to get you. Right, and because of their system, the government just says this happens and that's it, it happens. Kind of. Kyrgyzstan, you have to give Kyrgyzstan a bit more credit than that, but... Um, but his meeting with Putin didn't go as planned. He was hoping sure. Putin would, would back him up. And Putin was like, you're a great guy and, and, and you're wonderful, blah, blah, blah. But fuck off. But yeah, yeah, but you're fucked. Yeah. Basically, you know, um, uh, you know, Russia is going to side with the government on this one, basically, right? Because we want, we want, our, we want our friends. And, uh, so, and so that was probably enough for the government. They said, what the fuck? I, I think. I'm speculating, right? They yeah. probably said, yeah. what the fuck? What are you doing? Um, there's a whole big question about whether Jane Bekov knew what national security was doing. Whatever the case is, he sends seven men in and it goes bad. It goes bad fast. The whole thing is on, you can watch it on YouTube. It's like watching a movie. Um, they are, are, they're using rubber bullets. They're shooting supporters to try to get through supporters. They're trying to make a, their way to his house. And eventually the supporters, as night falls, they do it around late evening. Uh, as night falls, the supporters begin to burn parts of the compound and blockade it to trap the soldiers inside the compound. And eventually they're able to capture the soldiers. Along the way, one of them, one of the soldiers is killed. And there's conflicting accounts as to what happened. Altenbaev himself says that he had a gun and he fired in the air um, in the face of the, of the soldiers. So now there's a lot of talk that he'll be charged with murder, as in he himself killing the soldier directly. Um, that's not what he's claiming he did, but... He, if if his version of the events are true, he made a big mistake even holding that gun. Um, so um, yeah, uh, and so they held the, the one who was killed, and they held the other six hostage. And this seemed to ratchet things up. Altenbayev seemed to resolve in his mind that he wanted to now overthrow the government. It went from being, I guess, got to find a way to sort of positionally survive and figure out how to navigate this to the only way I will survive is the repeat of revolution. So this gets so complicated, but basically he wanted his supporters to go to Bishkek, uh, first in a rally, and then the march on the Capitol building. And this, everyone understood, meant revolution. Everyone understood he was trying to replicate 2005 and 2010. This is exactly what those revolutions looked like. A bunch of people from the countryside basically bus in, rally, and then storm the actual physical government buildings. So so let's just let's just get this straight. So basically we can then assume that after his meeting went bad with Putin, he was like, right, I'm gonna do this myself, rallying everybody, government goes mad, and then it leads to what happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, I'll say this for Atambayev. He's got balls. He's got very oh, big yeah. balls. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he that he actually retreated. Um, uh, so uh, he wasn't able to get enough supporters into the city because the government began to send real firepower up to Koytash. Um, the uh, they 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 said, okay, not seven soldiers. We're sending a battalion. And they they over the night they had already they already unleashed a giant uh, force of police. The police were unarmed. You can watch on YouTube this very sad video where the police and supporters are throwing stones at each other. The police have no weapons. Um, it's, it's bizarre. Um, but um, so he's got a bad situation in that uh, they're coming for him. Uh, and he retreats back to Koytash, which I personally think was very tactically stupid on his part. Um, and um, uh, he locked himself in his bunker and uh, a siege begins. Uh, the supporters and the soldiers are in armed conflict. Uh, the, the stuff is being burned down left and right. There's gunfire. You, you, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a battle. Right, and who who's fighting for him though? Like these are what like his only armed militia or the the people he brought in the yurts? We'll get to that. It's the people he brought in the yurts. Um, okay. So we're talking about civilians, but we'll get to this. There's all sorts of questions about them um, and why he failed. Uh, and the thing is, though, that the, the compound eventually gets taken by the government and they lay siege to his bunker. And then the, there's a deputy minister uh, of the interior. Basically, he's the, the, one of the chief police. He negotiates with him personally for, for him to surrender. Uh, and uh, he does. He surrenders. Uh, the, the, his supporters eventually did rampage through Bishkek late at night when it all calmed down after the soldiers sort of closed the compound, fortified it. But then mostly withdrew, um, and um, there was one night of, of basically like very like scary street violence in Bishkek. Everyone sort of stayed in the, and stayed at home, and then poof, gone. He's sitting in a jail in national security as we speak. But what one person was killed, right? I read the they, like I saw a video where they captured the security forces and someone was killed. Like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched that, uh, and one of my colleagues was there, um, and um, yeah. So so. Um, yeah, that was that was one of the national security soldiers. He was killed. His uh, funeral actually took place right around the corner where I lived. Uh, where I live, that was really awful to see. I gotta say, um, yeah. So I mean, he was basically they, those those seven, from what I understand, were just, were caught between a rock and a hard place. Right? They were given rubber bullets because they were not supposed to use lethal force. They're not supposed to use lethal force because Altsenbai was using human shields. Um, and uh, families even, right? You know, there child- were children there. So they didn't really have the ability to defend themselves. And they were sent in only seven of them. Seven of them against, ch- try to fathom this, seven of them versus hundreds, right? Laun- they, you know, they had to sneak over the wall into a compound for which they had very bad intelligence. They didn't even have a, f- a proper map of it, apparently. Um, and they had to somehow not only break through lines of defenses within there, which they did, actually, uh, but then they somehow had to get this guy out of a bunker. Well, it's no wonder they got captured then. No wonder they got captured. No wonder they got captured. And you can imagine heads rolled as a result afterwards. And also why the government decided to bring out heavy force afterwards. There's one other thing about this that we can get into. Um, supporters. Who were the supporters? Are the supporters? So, okay, there's a north-south dynamic going on in Kyrgyzstan. His supporters primarily come from the area around Bishkek itself, which is in the north. Um, so these tend to be people who are, uh, they're Kyrgyz, ethnically Kyrgyz, so they have a strong Kyrgyz identity, but they have a much uh, stronger affinity towards Russia, the Soviet past, etc. Right? So the South tends to be much more, let's say, anti-Soviet legacy, and the North is more pro-Soviet legacy. Um, moreover, they tend to be more, properly speaking, working class, or ex-working class, right? They, they themselves or their fathers worked in factories, 
whereas the South tends to be more agricultural, nomadic even still with shepherds and so on. Like, like well, that's what you think of traditionally with like Mongols, right? Like it's more like that. Yeah, more like that, more like that. But the North, the North was the North. I mean, the thing is about the the Turkic Mongolic peoples is they were never as nomadic as uh, as, as as the you know uh, the books would have us believe, right? Uh, they uh. they were like semi sedentarized and kind of had a pattern. They're like Native Americans. They had like a pattern. They would move. In the summer, they'd go up the mountains and, and shepherd their uh, animals. In the winter, they move down uh, and they get to closer to the water sources and they sort of camp out and do that again around in the circle. So they actually had pop- property claims and maybe not individual property claims with a sense of sort of where the clan's territory was. So they were not, they were not like just wandering around, basically, right? Um, that was out of their system already by centuries. So, um, and uh, moreover, they, they are people who uh, probably are, were directly related to him. Um, you know, Kyrgyz have very big and complex clan structures. Um, and there is a lot of speculation, and this is, this is a speculation, that they also were paid. They basically were paid by him. I'm not really inclined to, to how to explain this. I kind of think it doesn't matter because the way it works in Turkmen-Mongolic tradition, being paid is a sign of respect, right? So... In the in the weird kind of the, the kind of weird contradiction you see in a lot of post-Soviet Central Asian countries is there's a real conflict between between tradition and modernity on the very issue of what corruption even is right. So um, the idea of like this guy paying them to sit in his in his compound and protect him is in the in a traditionalist mindset is in no way contradictory with them also genuinely caring about him, <clears throat> right? He's like essentially um, sharing his resources. Right, they're in it together. How weird! Because, like in the West, if you had yeah. to say, like, "Hey, you need to pay your boys to come and protect you," <laughs> it's like they're not your boys; they're just security. But over yeah. there, that's like expected. But when you saw the way these guys fought, so um, there's also a lot of just resentment and anti-government sentiment. Kyrgyz are sort of Kyrgyz can be very authoritarian within their families, uh-huh. but when it comes to sort of the relationship to government government authorities, they can be very uh, almost anarchistic. Wow, so they just want to be left alone. They want to be left alone. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot, there's a lot of feeling of just this government is incompetent and this is the one good president we had and et cetera. There's also then the North-South rivalry, which is why I mentioned that, which a lot of them were even declaring, they, in, in Kyrgyz, they were saying the North must unite against the South, which is a very scary thing to say because that's basically an equation for civil war. Um, and so they saw, they saw this kind of ancient dynamic between the North and South Kyrgyz going on because the, the new president, Jane Bekov, is a Southerner. Um, even though he was handpicked by Atambayev. There's a lot of also just a lack of critical thinking going on, you know, and Atambayev, he really personalized things. The government's position throughout the whole thing is we need to build our institutions um, and we we need to, like, uh, we need to defeat corruption, which, of course, is oftentimes an empty line, but does go hand in hand with the notion of strengthening your institutions. And most of all, you can't have some ex-president going off and meeting a foreign leader of another nation to, like, personally negotiate with him as if he's your best buddy. You know, and um, and Atambayev kept really making things personal. He kept trying to play up this like traditional morality of like it's really a relationship between men. You know, and Jane Bekov is like not being a proper man. Like a traditional um, like whistle in the mountains kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and Jane Bekov was saying, "What the heck? What the heck?" Actually, Jane Bekov doesn't say much. He's an extremely taciturn individual. Um, I'm, I've I've met like um, factory robots that probably talk more than he does, um, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but the but the general the general message coming to the government is well this is this is politics this is not this is not personal right you know this is about this is about institutions and trying to build a functioning state um, and, uh, and 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 the thing about Altenbayev is he's wily as a fox 
uh, very strong emotional intelligence, really good at reading crowd, um, not very great on the strategic side. Um, and uh, I think he like he hit on this as a kind of strat as a strategy that he that he thought would work, and it may have worked in terms of mobilizing uh, a core group of supporters. But what he found out when he came to Bishkek was that it wasn't enough. People are just don't want to be involved. What's remarkable is how much actual public sympathy there is for him. Um, a lot of people were like, oh, the poor guy, he's going to die in jail. He's going to be an old man in jail. To which I'm saying, he's not going to die in jail. Come the next president, he'll get a pardon and be released. That's what's going to happen, everybody. Like, let's be realistic. Uh, but he successfully had played up this idea of himself being like this, you know, the nice old man who was just like trying to do the right thing and this bad government stopped him. But people didn't want to actually get involved. They have like revolution fatigue. They want their institutions to be strong. They're very nervous about about the southern guy being up there, and this might be another equation for totalitarianism, authoritarianism, a return to the 2005-2010 period. But they they're 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 too nervous of going back to the instability of the immediate post-revolutionary periods and what that will do to them economically, globally, you name it. Kyrgyzstan is finally kind of coming out from obscurity. Uh, it's got a tourism industry. It's starting to like actually develop something of a functioning economy, and they were just like, "No, we're not. We're not going to get involved this time." Right, but the people that did get involved to protect him, like, tell me more about that because that was a lot of people, and they had a lot of weapons as well, right? Yeah, but so, Kyrgyzstan's a wash. Kyrgyzstan's a wash in guns. It's just, uh, it's oftentimes, uh, it, uh, 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 crime is very smart enough. Organized crime is very smart enough to know not to use it. And to also monopolize it, right? So, you know, uh, Street Thug is not going to come at you with a Kalashnikov rifle, right? Um, they're very good at somehow keeping the weapons among their own ranks. And then, and but, you know, a lot of households do have guns. It's like, just yeah. So basically, the, the people that came to support him just pulled the rifle out of their bedroom, essentially. Yeah, their, their hunting rifle, the old Kalashnikov, yeah, you name it. Okay. okay. And, and whatever Optum by himself through his own money and resources was able to require most likely. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So so what is happening now? You know, this was how long ago? What, like a month ago or so? That actually, it's approximately maybe a month. Yeah, a month and a half. So, so what's the situation now? Has there any been, been any clashes since? No, no, there have been no clashes since. They're just turning the screws on him uh, in terms of the criminal proceedings. Um, they're adding more and more potential charges to him. Uh, they're going after... So the other thing is about the political party. The ruling party has sort of split uh, between his supporters uh, and those who support the, the current government. And that's a very unclear situation. But though, but the, the leadership of the support faction uh, are also been rounded up and questioned and some been thrown in jail. Uh, so the, they, they've tried to shut down. They, shut, they, they did shut down his TV station. He owns a TV station. Uh, it still operates online. Um, they are confiscating his properties all over the place, building a case. There's like... There's a, a surprisingly for for Kyrgyzstan a very methodical kind of let's say purge happening right they are they're they're gathering up all the evidence they're shutting down uh, his network well right. he he's done out here like he's not coming back then no but what about his supporter base is that do you think they're going to carry on causing trouble well yeah so a lot of people are very concerned about one particular moment his arraignment um, so um, uh, his arraignment will require him to be physically transferred from one building to another. And that's the moment when, when uh, people are very afraid where his supporters might try something violently to get him out of there. Um, and uh, to give you an idea of, of what it's like, um, so the, the, the Ministry of Interior, which is the police, 
and national security um, are not very far away from each other. They're about two blocks away from each other. Uh, and there's been a long rumored secret tunnel from the Soviet period from the Ministry of Interior to uh, national security. We have footage of him being driven into the Ministry of Interior. And then we have footage of him uh, walking around, being escorted through national security. He somehow managed to get from one to the other without uh, all the people around those buildings seeing it. Um, so which means that they're very cognizant of the of, of the way space is playing in all this. And one of the most interesting things about conflict in Kyrgyzstan is how spatial it is. Um, and like even like two blocks of empty space with sort of limited uh, weak uh, police resources is already enough to make them want to go on the ground with the guy. So one of the things that they're very concerned about is, is how would they literally transfer him to the court and back physically? Um, and what would they have to do in order to, to succeed in that? So he was actually supposed to already be arraigned uh, later in August, and they just deferred it. And I think they're going to defer it and defer it and defer it until, first off, they really have a case built based upon whatever evidence they either can legitimately collect or manufacture. Um, and, uh, and then when they can sort of settle on a real strategy for how they can successfully physically move from one spot to the other, um, which sounds like it should be easy, right? Just fill the city up with soldiers and police and so on and so forth, right? But it's a country of a history of evolution. Um, and, and they really want to exert the image that they have this under control. They are a strong government or stronger government, Right, Kyrgyzstan is no longer an unstable place. International investors, please come. Russia, please depend on us. China, please depend on us. So they can't just like, you know, pull out literally thousands upon thousands of soldiers just for one man. Right, it's going to show like the, this country is ready to fold at any minute when it's yeah. in fact not, but maybe is. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so, so you can see the dilemma of the authorities in this respect, and and it's interesting how space space really plays a role in this. Um, uh, when he was, uh, when he was actually taken, they had helicopters flying around Koitosh, uh, and, uh, one of them even went down and then up and, and also a group of trucks, uh, drove out of the compound in another direction. And, uh, my colleagues and I have thought that was an attempt to distract. That was really an attempt to make his supporters think that, uh, he either went on a helicopter or by, he went some other route. And those, those cars, those trucks took a very weird route to get back to Bishkek, um, like going through towns and so on, probably precisely to like lay the seed because of social media and everything, lay the seed of, oh, there he, that must be where he's going, etc. because they had to find a way to get him physically back to Bishkek. And, and apart from this little fiefdom he's created in his compound and Bishkek and the areas around there, has he got much support in the rest of the country? It's hard to, it's hard to describe what you mean by support. Uh, I would say he has moral support in many parts of the north, but not political support. People, for the most part, are not willing to have the country become unstable for his sake. And I don't think he has enough symbolic value uh, that they feel that there's something greater at stake. Right. And why is it that the north and the south really don't get on? Like, I get what you said. There's... You know, one half is is in favor of old Soviet stuff, and then the other half, you know, wants to be free. Like, what what's what happened there? Why are they why are they kind of against each other? In brief, the South sort of maintained its nomadic pre-Islamic heritage. The North okay. Islamicized, so they already had a major religious difference. Also, the North had much more of the mountainous geography, and the South had sort of more aggregable land. Uh, the South was closer to actual real centers of Islamic learning and civilization. The North was more in the backwater. 
And then the big thing is the Russians. The north, essentially, especially the area around what is now Bishkek, the tribes that were there, essentially invited the Russian Empire in to help them with their own military conflicts among each other. Um, and so the Russian the Russian Empire came, and the and many of those northern tribes actually declared fealty to the to to Catherine, uh, and actually became subjects of the Russian Empire. And the South did not. And so the South uh, was forcibly annexed into the Russian Empire. Let's say a generation, two generations later. Um, and there's some very like sad stories from that period. That's where that the South the South, despite being very Islamic, actually was led by a woman who even sacrificed their own son in, in, the, in the quest for first independence and then peace. It's like a very dramatic story. And that's where it all comes from, right? There's the sense that they are, they're, they're not enemies. There is a sense that they are, they are both Kyrgyz, but there's sometimes competition over who is the real Kyrgyz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you get that anyway. Even in Britain, we have this like, you know, North and South, like Southerners are all soft northerners are not <laughs> you know all of this so well i mean i think about the american that's, civil that's war the american civil war and i'm a northerner and i i believe that the confederacy was morally wrong but the north thought that the confederacy were just a bunch of pansies they would just fold over the moment the north showed up to fight and that is not what the south did um so yeah you get these kind of stereotypes um the soviets played on those soviet types stereotypes soviet types uh they uh what they did was um uh they basically played factions against each other and eventually sort of installed northerners in power and so throughout most of the soviet period northerners were effectively running things uh, and there that's so that's where a lot of rivalry comes from the south feels like it didn't want to be part of this to begin with and now that it's part of it it keeps sort of gets keeps getting sidelined um and uh yeah and the north meanwhile thinks all oh, you guys you just refuse to uh, modernize you know, modernity back in the day was working with the Russians and then it was working with the Soviets. And now it's, you know, playing the geopolitical game and being more liberal and democratic. And you guys won't do that. What's wrong with you? You know, the North has more education. It's got it had more industry. Uh, so it has the, leg- the, psych- psych- the kind of psychological cultural legacies of that industry. It's got the railway connections. It's got the road connections. The South is more physically isolated, you know, and that's where it all comes from. Interesting. So just to just to finish this off then, what do you think might happen then in Kyrgyzstan? Because this is quite a significant situation, even though it is a kind of flash in the pan. You know, what, what do you think might end up from all this? I think the government has to be very careful. I think the government needs to be sure that it can really assuage the North's concerns that it will be a repeat of that second president, a repeat of what was called Southern rule. Uh, or what they call family rule, clan rule, is the sort of euphemism the North use about it. They need to be very careful to succeed in, in not conveying that image. They need to meanwhile be be very careful to make sure that the South doesn't feel like uh, its its people are just kowtowing to the North and giving the North whatever they want. So they 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 they, they the president and his circle have a really difficult balancing act. They need to do symbolically. Um, so a lot is going to depend on how they they do treat Atambayev when he's on trial. Um, will they be very respectful with him? Will they let him speak? Will they not let him speak? He's, it's, you're trapped either way, right? If you let him speak and rant, you run the chance that he could really inspire some violence. If you don't, then people think that you're you're censoring him and being authoritarian. You're kind of trapped, right? So how do you do this, right? So and the thing is, he's shown. He's shown himself to be very wily and cunning and uh, 
I personally don't really think he's brave. I think hiding behind women and children is is cowardly. But they have they are they are taking they are investigating and taking prisoner elements of his own family, maybe as leverage. Like shut up, do what we say, play the play the game, and you all will get out safe. But I mean, this is a guy who picked a fight with neighboring Kazakhstan near the end of his presidency, and Kazakhstan is the big brother of Kyrgyzstan, right? You know, Kazakhstan basically feels like no matter what happens, we'll take care of Kyrgyzstan. We'll find a way. We'll work together. They're very similar culturally, and they have ancient contacts. You know, Kazakhstan is probably a better friend to Kyrgyzstan than Russia is. Um, and um, he picked a fight with them. Uh, and, and many Kyrgyz were, were like, some Kyrgyz loved him for doing it because they have an inferiority complex. And other Kyrgyz were like, what? Fighting with Kazakhstan? They're, they're, they're Kazakhstan. They're, they're, our, they're our guys. They help us. Um, so the government really has a very difficult symbolic balancing act it needs to do. Um, it needs to also find this man guilty um, for his crimes, especially if they want to, to convince the international community that they are serious about cracking down on corruption and having strong institutions. Uh, but they also need to be careful that because he was Russia's guy, they need to be very careful that while they're doing that, they let Russia know that don't worry, that doesn't change the rules of the game. The, the, the actors change, but we don't. You know, the game doesn't, the, the players change, but the game stays, right? Um, it's difficult. It's really difficult. Um, and it, it, it's not the only uh, really difficult balancing act they're faced with. They have the whole problem about China and very strong anti-Chinese sentiment going on there. And that's very explosive. Um, so I, I really don't know. I don't know if it's yet going to be a flash in the pan or if it's going to be a major issue. So far, it seems that people are very angry. And they morally support him, but it's not yet um, an anger that they're willing to act on uh, physically, violently. Um, maybe what will happen is, because especially the ruling party has a lot of problems and uh, it's internally divided, maybe Kyrgyzstan did have a more or less genuine presidential election in 2017 to get itself to this point. And maybe in the upcoming parliamentary elections, we might see a lot of failed electioneering. Maybe people will just not go with the ruling party, no matter how much money it throws at them, right? Um, and they really will express a discontent and a, a real genuine vote. I, I don't know. I don't know yet. I really don't know. We're really, we're really still too close to the event to to know. A lot of people are nervous about things could go. They're they they're keep they're keeping a, a brave face. Uh, they they unlike in previous situations, they don't want to panic and freak out and get all emotional, which which they're prone to do. This time around, they're like, nope, let's just let's just bear it and see where this is going and, and hope for the best, even though we don't really know what that is. And uh, yeah, that's the best I can tell you, man. All right, man. Sounds very precarious. Um, thanks very much. Um, if people want to get in contact with you and speak more about this, where can they do that? And I, I think they definitely should, because this is the kind of region you just rarely ever hear about. But if things go off, it's going to affect all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my friends, actually, uh, um, when Kyrgyzstan had not only its second revolution, but there was an inter-ethnic conflict that happened in the South shortly after that revolution. One of my friends actually was was called up by Obama himself. And he sat down across the guy and had to explain to him the situation because – and Obama told him, we normally never pay attention to you guys. You know, you're like a blip, <laughs> you're like a blip on the map. But then suddenly when you have a revolution, everyone's like, oh, oh my god, what's happening? And it's because of the location, right? Kyrgyzstan, exactly, exactly. Uh, it's vital, right? It's vital. It's a very vital location. It's amazing that it doesn't get more attention. Um, 
But um, uh, the way they can get a hold of me, really honestly, is through my Twitter account, which is a bit paradoxical. I, I, I have my Twitter account, Schwartztronica, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-T-R-O-I-N-I-C-A. Like Schwartz, my last name, Electronica. It's a stupid name. I made it when I was like in my 20s. Forgive me. Um, but uh, so it's a little paradoxical because I close my account. I have my tweets private because of, of certain mass media laws that exist in Kyrgyzstan. Um, so in order to really speak freely, I close it because if it's closed, it's private and hence not mass media. Let's put it that way. So they would have to request to follow me or request to direct message me. Um, and that's, But that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, I, I would suggest email, but my, my email accounts actually kind of keep changing because I, I, I really am remiss. I should have like a schwartz.com website with its own dedicated email address. So Twitter is the way. All right, mate. Thank you very much. Great, great. All right. That was Christopher Schwartz speaking about a very serious and political shootout recently in Kyrgyzstan, a place you don't really hear of anywhere, to be honest. Um, This episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com, defense with an S. And if you like what we're doing and you want to subscribe on the Patreon to get bonus episodes, access to the Discord, all of that, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. The bigger the Patreon gets, the bigger Popular Front gets, basically. And again, thank you so much to everybody who took part in the Popular Front 10K campaign. I don't just mean everybody that contributed, I mean everybody that shared it, all of that. It really, really helped. We hit our target, very happy with that. Um, So you will see a lot of changes coming, all good stuff. You know, I've ordered a better mic so things won't sound so shit. Hopefully going to get someone to help me with uh, sound levels, sound engineering, all of that. Because right now it's just me doing it in GarageBand on the MacBook. And I know it doesn't always sound very good. So yeah, we're going to do all of that. Um, and also we have a new documentary coming out soon we've been in Hong Kong again thanks to the uh, Popular Front 10k campaign we've been in Hong Kong filming the conflict the clashes between protesters the police the state essentially against the creeping authoritarianism of the Chinese government in Hong Kong so that will be out soon on youtube.com slash popular front you can watch that comment on it get very mad and all that Um, yeah youtube.com slash popular front also uh thanks we hit 10k followers or 11k or something like that on the instagram which is cool we haven't been banned yet i'm amazed but we haven't been banned yet we every week we get something saying like we're going to be deleted soon but i don't know not yet go to instagram.com slash popular dot front twitter you can keep up to date with popular front at popular front co or me, which is uh, at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-I-H-A-N, if I had to spell my own name then. Uh, yeah, or well, the website, popularfront.co. Um, thank you to everybody on the higher tier Patreon. Thank you to everybody on the Patreon, but uh, thank you to the following people. Adam Bergsnyder, Axel Iverson, Azad, Brian McLaughlin, Chad Walker, Christina Rivetti, Christopher Martin, Craig Miller, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, David Gilmore, Diana Gorvanek, E. Louise Larson, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Josh, Juan Hernandez, K. Hardy Roberts, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, L.H., Lee Kamadi. <laughs> Margaret Bowling. There's no way to say that without it, you know what I mean? Um, Moody Al Rashid, 
Nay Van Dor, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Q-Ball, Rasha Alakidi, Rohan Abari, Ryan Sandercock, Skartoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you all very much, and thank you to everybody uh, on the Patreon. Honestly, this is all independent, all grassroots, and this all really does help it grow. You know what, we started this a year and a half ago, not even, and it's just grown so rapid, and we're at a point now where we can really just go and do what we plan to do from the start, you know, proper independent, on the ground reporting, podcasts, video content, the articles, the website, everything, like it's going fast, um, it's doing really well. Also, uh, merchandise helps us, and you can look cool wearing our stuff. Go to www.popularfront.shop, that's where you can get merch. Uh, music in this episode the intro is by home and the outro is by sam black go to his soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash sun dash of dash dash old that sun is in s-u-n um and again thank you so much to everybody who's supporting popular front i really really appreciate it like when we did the 10k campaign i thought oh maybe we'll hit five like maybe seven um and it hit even above 10 so thank you very much we hit like 10,200. Uh, Indiegogo, the the mafia platform that it is, they've taken like a fair chunk, but it you know can't all be winners, can we? Uh, in everything, so yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm.